You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, a weekly podcast digesting the news, taking the dirty, the smelly, the unwanted bits of what's happening in our world, giving him some time, some air, some mixing, in short, doing a bit of good composting to see if, given that time and the air, they might turn into something better, something useful, into fresh soil from which new life might spring. We're recording today on Gadigal country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God, and land that for tens of thousands of years has been the home of the Eora nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and we dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land, attentive to Indigenous wisdom and leadership, that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. And for you listeners, thanks for joining us. And uh, you might like to take a moment too to uh, just acknowledge in your own hearts the land that you're on, uh, the connection to it that you have, and uh, the history of the place that you're in uh, as you listen to us. And uh, thank you for joining us. I'm here today with Lisa Sharon Harper. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. I'm so, so happy to be here, Byron. It's, it's really an honor, and I love, I love your connection to this land and uh, and to the Gadigal people, the Eorian Nation, and and as a guest on the program who is also sitting on this land, I acknowledge that as well. And as a guest from a whole other nation, from from Turtle Island, as they say, um, I bring greetings from my people and also say thank you to uh, the Australians, past, present, and future, for allowing me to be here. Well, it's it's. Excellent that you're here with us in Paddington for this last week or so. It's been lovely having you sharing some time with us as you're traveling around. And thank you for for taking the time today to squeeze in this recording. Let me help our listeners get a bit more of a sense of you and where you've come from. Lisa is a speaker, a writer, an activist from the US. Uh, You're the founder and president of freedomroad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap by convening forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action toward a just world. I'd love to hear a bit more about that in just a minute, but let me say a bit more of your your bio here. For many years, and ranging from uh, Ferguson to New York, from Germany to here in Sydney, Lisa has been leading trainings and helping mobilise clergy and community leaders around shared values for the common good, with a focus on racial justice. You were for a number of years uh, working for Sojourners Mm -hmm. um, and you were the founding executive director of New York Faith and Justice, an organization at the hub of an ecumenical movement to end poverty in New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, You helped establish faith leaders for environmental justice. You've helped to organize faith leaders to speak out on immigration reform, helping to build the evangelical immigration table back a few years ago. Mm -hmm. You uh, were a core faster, fasting for 21 days in 2013 as part of a immigration reform fast for families. That's funny, 22 days. 22 days. Oh, Don't cut off that extra day. No, every hour, every hour is precious there. It's really true. Yeah. In 2014, you were, you were training and working with evangelicals in St. Louis uh, as part of the push for justice in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And then similarly in Baltimore in 2015. And also in 2015, the Huffington Post recognized you as one of 50 powerful women religious leaders to celebrate on International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. You've got a Master's in Human Rights from Columbia in New York City, Mm -hmm. and you're currently in the process of ordination with the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church. 
that's an impressive bio and also a fascinating one. I feel like every single line there, I would love to, you know, <laughs> just hear you talk for hours about. Oh, um, thank you. But how about we focus in on Freedom Road as the, the thing that's occupying your attention most at the moment? Absolutely. Tell us a bit more about Freedom Road. Mm. Well, Freedom Road came about really after the 2016 election. Um, I woke up that morning uh, well, let's put it this way. I didn't even, I didn't have to wake up. The minute that number 45 stepped to the pro, to the podium and declared that he had won, my body literally shook. Like it literally, I started to shake. This doesn't happen to me. I'm not like that. Um, I, I usually have pretty good control over my body, but it started to shake and I started to feel like I was now personally under attack, but not just personally, my people were under attack and and the ability for us to flourish was removed. And instead, now we had to go into defense mode. And that is exactly what has happened to people of color in the United States. But the, what, what struck me in the, in the next morning and the coming weeks after that is that the reason why that happened is because in the United States, there are competing narratives about who we are as a nation, how we got to be where we are. And because of those competing narratives, you have two different visions of what it will take to become great, of what it will take to actually realize our dream, that, that great American dream that Dr. King talked about, the dream of the beloved community, or um, or what it, what it will take you know, for prosperity, as, as Donald Trump might actually say, or people... I mean, in his, who follow his understanding or his narrative. So with these competing narratives, what I realized is there's a gap mm. and that gap needs to be filled. That gap needs to be bridged. So Freedom Road developed as a consulting group that can help groups to bridge that gap. Yeah, excellent. And so but what, what does it actually do to bridge that gap? I mean, that yeah. sounds like an excellent goal. Right. Something, you know, I would <laughs> love to see happen in your own country and also here. Yeah. But, you know, what, what are the actual practices that seek to bridge that gap? Right. There are five major things that we do. We consult and coach and train. We also put together forums that actually do bring together uh, disparate groups within a city or a state or a nation or a religious group or something like that that gives them the ability to have conversations and dialogues that bring common understanding. Mm. And then from that common understanding, we build common commitments. And from common commitments, we build common action over periods of time that brings about a more just world. Mm. Um, so those forums are pretty pretty critical. We have one that we're, we're literally doing. We've been in the process of organizing the faith communities in Richmond over the last year, Richmond, Virginia. And that, the Richmond, Virginia was the former seat of the Confederacy in the United States. Yeah. It was literally the city where um, Jefferson so that's, that's Davis. The South. That's, <laughs> it's the antebellum South, as yeah. in like the slavery South. Yeah, pre Civil War, yeah. Yeah, pre Civil War, exactly. And so the, the, um, the Confederacy started in Alabama, but moved to Richmond, Virginia. And um, and so both of those both of those places actually claim Confederacy um, cradle, uh, but we're going there and we're going to be working with faith leaders and uh, civically civil leaders, civil um, society leaders, in order to bring about 
truth telling and in order to craft a, a mm. way for people in Richmond to tell the truth about the history. Because in Richmond, I think the best image I've ever heard somebody say is that the truth has been layered over and literally lives beneath the ground. Mm. Like literally, they have buried the truth of what happened in Richmond. And it also lives in the in the vestry um, notes from a hundred years ago, mm. because it was in vestry. It was in vestry meetings that Jim Crow was crafted. Wow! Yes, in the years directly following the Civil War in Richmond. So we need to tell the truth so that we can face the, we can face how how our world was built the way that it is. Yeah. And begin to dream of and build another world yeah. together. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it, it really resonates uh, in an Australian context, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at the moment with, uh, you know, we're, we're still in the aftermath of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, mm-hmm. um, where a, a gathering of over 300 uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous leaders came together, one of the largest representative gatherings of elders, I think, wow. uh, in memory. Wow. And reached very close to a full consensus on what they were asking for of the Australian government and the wow. Australian people. And at the core of what they were asking for was the telling of truth. Yes. Um, as part of a process uh, towards um, treaty. The thing is, you can't have healing mm. without truth. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of like if you're sick, right? And you can't look at America right now and not realize we're sick. We are sick. We're a sick nation. Yeah. We are sick. We have. We are. We actually have some kind of disease working its way through our governance systems, and it is gumming up the systems and making us unable to function. We we are unfunctionable right now, and I actually what I've seen here in the in Australia is that y'all are dealing with something kind of similar. Yeah, you know what absolutely. I mean? It's something similar in a lot of parallels, and so it's like going to the doctor. If you are sick, you go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. To hear the truth of the prognosis, yeah. to hear the diagnosis, to hear what what is it that we have? How did you and figure out how did you get this disease yeah. so that you can treat it? There is no way for an entire nation to get well again, to be able to function again without actually really looking at the whole truth, mm-hmm. not just the recent you know, political history. Yeah, not but just the, the symptoms, but the, not at just the, the what's symptoms. the underlying condition. Yes. Like, how did we get here? Yeah. How did we get here? Um, and so, so that's actually, that those forums are a big part of what we do and what we're capable of doing. Um, we have 20 uh, consultants that are on our team that mm-hmm. can be jobbed out at different times for different um, groups, depending on the expertise that's needed. And those, this forum in particular in Richmond is drawing on three of our consultants' expertise. We're all be working together. So that's the forums. And then the last thing that we do is we actually do pilgrimages. And mm. those pilgrimages also bring people together for common experience yep. and common uh, understanding and bring about common commitment to action. And so we have, we have uh, several different venues through which you can actually do a pilgrimage. One is actually just through, we have one that we do every year called Ruby Woo Pilgrimage. Ruby Woo is a lipstick color. All right, yes. <laughs> Mac. <laughs> Mac. Mac should be paying me and they're not, actually. <laughs> um, but they did give permission for us to use that, to use that uh, lipstick colors 
uh, a name for our pilgrimage. And the reason is because it's, it's, a, it's a pilgrimage that empowers women. It's bright red, right mm-hmm. lipstick, so we wear a bright red lipstick. But what we're doing is we're going back through the history of women's struggles for empowerment in the United States. We yeah. might actually take it overseas next year. We're thinking mm-hmm. about that. And asking the question of how does how how have the systems and structures in our society have been how have they been set up? When were they set up? For what purpose were they set up? To actually block or to empower women. Yeah. So this year we're focused on the vote, on women's capacity to vote in the United States. The struggle, the intersectional struggle of women in the U.S. to attain, maintain, and protect the vote. Mm. And it's a three-day pilgrimage, and it ends on Capitol Hill in the United States. And so we're really, really excited about that. That's actually November. We're going to be on the road November 4 through 8. Yeah. Um, so yeah, right. and you—you, you, uh, I mean, one of the really touches on one of the themes of uh, perhaps our whole discussion today, but also more mm-hmm. broadly this podcast, which is how do people change? How does yes. society change? And yeah, uh, I think that um, the the practice of pilgrimage has historically been uh, a way that people have sought out where is the place that I need to get to, yeah, in my inner life, mm-hmm. and and uh, having an outer journey that is uh, mirrored by an inner journey. And so yeah. it, it recognizes the fact that change happens step by step, mm-hmm. but it also doesn't always happen by accident. It's possible for change to be deliberate and intentional and to open yourself to change. And that, yes. that was what I love about the idea of pilgrimage. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, pilgrimage is a spiritual experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just a tour. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just a trip. Um, it's not just about what you see in the places where you go, but it's really ultimately about the transformation that happens in you in those in-between spaces mm. when you are processing what you've seen. And also where, for us in our spiritual life, where we bring the questions of God and our relationship with God, our relationship with the other and the earth into um, into our wrestling process. And so, so that pilgrimage is one. We also have... Um, we have a partnership with Greenville University, downstate Illinois in the States, where um, uh, we have a series of pilgrimages that we're doing with them. And all of our pilgrimages tell a story. Mm-hmm. So the last one we did with them told the story of the control and confinement of African bodies on U.S. soil mm-hmm. um, and the parallel development of the political construct of whiteness. Um, This next one we're doing is the story of immigration in the United States, exploitation, Mm -hmm. and kingdom economics. You know, so the one after that will be the story of Plymouth Rock to Standing Rock, Mm. the story of the genocide, removal, and missionization of Native peoples in the United States. So we have lots of different stories we're telling through yeah. through lived. We're trying to give people the opportunity to, to, to step onto the land and hear the land tell the story of what happened there. And so our whole goal really is to bridge that narrative gap. And so we're using multiple ways to do that. We also have a podcast, Freedom Road Podcast, and that's another way to give people the ability to come into... Uh, closer proximity to the conversations yeah. that are happening on the ground, you know, in um, in the movement, so that they can understand why things are happening. Yeah, well, we'll make sure in the program notes for this podcast that there are links to the Freedom Road podcast and the uh, Freedom Road site, and people can chase that up. Awesome. 
so much of interest there, but it really does touch on where I'd love to go in our first main segment, what's the big idea? Okay. Where we take concepts from history or from political philosophy or from theology or from science, unpack it, see how this might be useful as we come to read the news day by day, week by week, um, in order to notice some of the underlying connections or understand relevant context. And uh, the big concept I was uh, wondering if we might explore a bit here relates very much to what you were just saying about the importance of truth-telling. Mm-hmm. And it's a concept that you mentioned when you were uh, preaching here at uh, Paddington Anglican on Sunday night, the idea of a core spiritual lie. Yeah. So mm-hmm. as, I, as I heard it on Sunday night, you were suggesting that communities, including and up to political communities the uh, size of a nation, mm-hmm. um, tell themselves stories, Yes. Uh, but often those stories fudge or omit or change the truth. And if there is a, a deep untruth at the heart of a, a nation or a community's story, then many of the dysfunctions and the injustices that we might see manifest in that community will flow out of that. Yeah. So part of truth-telling is identifying what is the, what is the lie or lies that have, have laid at the heart uh, and need to be uncovered and have, have the truth told. Uh, about them yeah and but so it's like to to nuance that a little bit because we're talking about what i talk about is core spiritual lies right so there are lots of lies we tell ourselves we tell ourselves lies about our history which Mm -hmm. we just talked about we tell ourselves lies about our politics politicians come on now they're all about spin they have to be in order to they're shaping and crafting message so they're telling lies per se or at least not full truth truths in order to spin a message, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about core spiritual lies. And what that means is these are lies that are basically ways that we have learned to see ourselves in relationship to God, others, and the land. In other words, and how we should be relating to all of those different, different entities. So I think the best way to explain it is really through examples. Let's start with the lie of colonization, the lie that colonization tells. When Gandhi was in South Africa, because this language comes from him, he was in South Africa as a young man, and then he went home eventually to India, and he looked around, and what he saw was he saw his own people living as underclass citizens in their own land Mm -hmm. because the nature of colonization is to racialize society. It's what's one of the modes of operation in order to proclaim... What do you mean by racializing society? That might not be a concept everyone's familiar with. Oh, sure. Okay, no problem. So, okay, wow, that's another big concept. So race, get this, it's not real. No. Imagine that, right? Race is not real. Race is actually a political construct. It's something that was created in order to determine how the polis, the people, will live together. Yeah. The first um, Western... Uh, like money. Like, yeah, well, yeah, like money. But, well, look... In one I'm, sense. In well, one sense. Right, I, that, for me, it's going to take me on a whole other there. thing. Sure. All right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm not really sure where to go with that one, but okay. But so, but let me just share in, in terms of race and the construct, Plato in 360 BC wrote The Republic. And in his book, in this long tome, The Republic, yeah. where he was really working out how should the polis live together? How does the Republic work? He described this thing called race. 
and he said that certain races, I mean, what races are, are the different metals people are made of, and the metal they're made of determines how they serve the Republic. So the gold people will serve the Republic this way, mm. copper people will serve the Republic this way, iron people will serve the... Now, Social obviously... flows from who you are in an unchangeable core. Yes. Who you are in your being yeah. determines how you will serve the Republic. And so... You know, and of course it wasn't colorized then, right? But that is race. Race at its core mm. was created to determine how we live together. But then over the years, that like race took on other forms. First, it was the Western, non-Western with Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And there was a sense of supremacy there, Western supremacy. And then it was... Um, civilized, uncivilized with Pope Nicholas V, right? So um, 1454. And then it was, um, with Carl Linnaeus, it was science, right? It was um, white Europeanus, yellow Asiatus, red Americanus, black um, Africanus. Those were his bifurcations. And of course, for him, white folks go on top because those are him, right? Mm -hmm. He's going to be on top. And then the black folks go on the bottom. And then it was their three-fifths compromise in the United States. And, and throughout all of colonized, colonized um, colonies, they created racial categorizations in order to determine one thing. Who had the divine call and capacity to exercise dominion on land? That was why race was created. That was the purpose of race. That's what race came, how race came to order colonized societies. So when you look at, uh, when you look at Gandhi's society, where you have the British um, nation, Britain, like uh, coming in and colonizing India, they set up racial categorizations and caste system that um, that basically, and, and the bottom line was, the only people who were true citizens were white folks, interestingly yeah. enough, in this place. And the Indians had no real rights, and the Indians were expendable, and they had no ability to create their own marketplace from their own products and, you know, spin their own cloth. Like one of the actual laws of the British Empire in India was that it became outlawed for Indians to spin their own cloth, their own silk, yeah. which they were known for up to that point. So what Gandhi said was he looked around and he realized this, this system is telling a lie to my people. This system that, that tells, that says that it is illegal for an Indian person to create beauty, to take raw material, create beauty, and then sell it and be able to, um, from their work, live off of the profit, which is what any human being should be able to do. The lie it's telling my people is that we are not made in the image of God. We are not children of God. We are not human. Because what it means to be human is to be called by God to exercise dominion on land. Yeah. Right? So what he said was spin. He said, go ahead and spin. Get those looms back out and spin your silk. 
And as they did, a little more of the image of God, like they, they felt it, it began to grow in them. They began to understand their capacity to exercise dominion again after having been, been subjugated for so long. In the United States, the, uh, the concept of the core lie was, uh, was, was actually borrowed from Gandhi and put into practice in the midst of the civil rights movement when um, Reverend Dr. James Lawson went and studied with Gandhi and brought it back and actually taught the idea of the core lie to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, um, and the discernment that they did in the midst of the Montgomery bus boycott or before the Montgomery bus boycott was what is the core spiritual lie of the segregated South, of, of Jim Crow, of yeah. the Jim Crow South. And they realized the core spiritual lie there was that some people are made to be masters while other people are made to be slaves, created, ordained to be slaves. So you see how a core spiritual lie tells a lie about who you are in relationship to God and others and the land. And so the, the question of the core lie now in the United States, like it's not just general. I mean, I think to some degree, almost any colonized nation would be able to point to a a core lie that is similar to what I just already said, the masters and slaves who is, who's made in the image of God, but it actually really helps to do some real specific discernment about the core lie over your nation because they take particular shape. And the next step in that in that process, the process of throwing off the core lie, renouncing it, is understanding its repercussions in your society's history and current politics. Yeah. So asking the question, what's the clearest manifestation of the lie? In the civil rights era um, in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama, they realized the clearest manifestation of that core spiritual lie was the bus system. Mm. That's why they, they, they focused on the bus system for that first round of action in Montgomery with the bus system. Because the bus system was a clear demonstration of the lie that some people are made to be masters and others slaves. Yeah. I bet for many of our listeners, uh, you're probably already turning over in your heads what might the core spiritual lie in uh, Australia be or in Mm. whichever community that you're a part of at the moment. Mm. Uh, And I think that's uh, really helpful there, Lisa, in encouraging us. That's that's a a process of deliberation that I'm covering, uh, uh, something that's going to take a time. It's going to be a journey, um, a journey towards the truth. Uh, You know, I just put up on Facebook this week after uh, hearing you preach on Sunday, just trying to pose that question briefly mm-hmm. uh, and already there are a number of really interesting suggestions for what that might be in Australia whether that's terra nullius the idea that this was empty land because what that says is that the people who were here were not people were not people exactly that's the spiritual lie yes the spiritual lie if terra nullius is it which I think it really might be yeah is that aboriginal people are not people, yes. and so therefore they don't count. That's right. They're invisible, preferably, or where they do appear, they are treated as less than fully human. And you know, I think that yeah. summarizes much of Australia's sad and violent history mm-hmm. on that front. And you know, I was thinking, uh, even as you were preaching on Sunday night, and I, I tried to spell this out a bit uh, online uh, this week that. Uh, Maybe there are some lines in our national anthem 
that put in a poetic form, poor poetry many people think, but putting that aside, put, put in, in song, some of those lies as a positive form. Um, so there are a couple of lines at the start of Australia's national anthem. Australians all let us rejoice, for we are young and free. Yeah. The claim that yeah. we are young yeah. is to erase the fact that in our community, as the hosts of our community, peoples who have been here for at least 65,000 years, if any place is not young, it is here. Yeah. Uh, it's the oldest continuous culture anywhere on earth. And yet, in the opening lines of the song that gets sung, you know, every week I know in my uh, children's school and in schools all around Australia and at sporting events and, you know, everywhere that the national anthem appears, wow. we begin. The first thing that we say about Australia is that we are young. Uh, and right there we have the erasure of history. Right there you have the erasure of people. And people, yes. Of people. So that Terra Nullius, it really, you really might be onto something there. Well, that, that was Uncle Ray made that suggestion. Ah. But, uh, I, I, I've heard many other people suggest it yeah. as the, sort of Australia's first foundational, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in a legal sense, that, that was the foundational lie that enabled the colonization uh, and the, yeah, there's a lot of complex history around that and, and the subsequent overturning of that legal um, stance uh, in the 1990s, mm -hmm. but the ongoing impact of it. Uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole journey to be explored here. Yeah. And uh, I think we're still early on that journey. But so here's the thing is that until, until the lie is repented, is renounced, and I mean publicly and by the government, like yeah. until the lie itself is renounced, then all legislation and institutions and the way things, systems, the way things work in your society will actually be crafted in some way on that lie, on Absolutely. the foundation of that lie. Yep. So the house itself is built on a lie, yep. which means that it's not stable. Yeah. It's, You've got to build your house on the rock. Not you, the hey, come on now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to uh, mm -hmm. quote one Jewish prophet. <laughs> No, that's right. And I mean, we see it even in the uh, announcement just this last uh, last couple of weeks of a new special envoy to uh, Indigenous people um, in Tony Abbott, our former Prime Minister, who, you know, this is sort of solving a problem that our new Prime Minister had of what to do with the, um, the, the old one who has continued to make trouble for the last few years, despite not being Prime Minister. And he's been appointed as a special envoy. And there's a whole long history of his own relationship um, with uh, a number of different Aboriginal communities, some of it quite commendable, some of it really very disappointing. Hmm. But just on this, this uh, erasure of people, uh, he has had a number of quotes in public, in prepared speeches, not just off-the-cuff remarks, prepared speeches where he has uh, spoken of Australia being empty at the arrival of uh, British colonists. Oh, my gosh. And it's just... And he's the special envoy to Aboriginal peoples? Yes. I'm sorry. Hey, Australians, I just want to let you know, that's really crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Or if it's, if it's not crazy, maybe it's actually... Because crazy is what you do when you're yes. not aware, when you don't have control over yourself. Maybe it's not crazy. Maybe it's actually a little bit diabolical. Yeah. Like, maybe it's actually intentional. Yeah. Because there's no intent of recognizing the full sovereignty and personhood of the Aboriginal people. And That's if that right. is the case, 
then that needs to be faced and dealt with. Absolutely. And you can see not just in those sort of passing mentions in the speech of a minor figure in the current government, but most starkly in the response of the Turnbull administration Mm. uh, some months ago when the Uluru Statement from the Heart came out and was immediately dismissed as unworkable, unpractical um, and, and ignorable even though it was the culmination of a government-initiated process of consultation. And the outcome had a very clear consensus outcome, but it wasn't the one the government was looking for. The delegates at that gathering overturned the agenda that the government had wanted to bring and asserted their collective mind, and it was rejected out of hand. This is, uh, you know, this, this, is, this is one of those moments that I think we really ought not let go in our national life. Oh, we can't. Um, because that, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a precious gift held out to all of us in this land of the possibility of a way forwards. And, and so I, I, I refuse yeah. to just let that drop. It's something that all Australians should go and read. It's not a long statement. Huh. If, you, if you haven't read it, go and look it up. It's freely available online. It's only about a page long. Wow. But uh, worth... Uh, paying attention to the Uluru statement from the heart. Wow. Can I just say very quickly before we move on that that right there is the doctor telling you you've got cancer and the treatment plan and the patient has decided to toss the doctor's recommendation. Yeah. And they still have cancer. Yeah, that's right. And it's not the first time... Uh, you know, doctors have pointed this out. This yeah. has been a consistent word over decades and centuries. Uh, wow. Okay. But let's let's move on, though. We, yeah, we will yeah. keep, keep an eye on time. <laughs> you have many other things to get on to today, though I'd love to keep chatting for hours. Let's move on to our second segment. Mm-hmm. Um, we might spend a, a little bit briefer time on this than in other episodes, but our second segment is What's Going On? So this is a point where we're going to pick up some recent stories in the news particularly ones that go beyond just the froth and bubble of the everyday gaffes and stunts and mistakes and the sort of personality politics or celebrity gossip, things that help to illustrate broader trends, deeper truths, Mm -hmm. uh, deeper lies, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and which might not have been in the headlines. They they might have been, and sometimes it might be a big story that we just think needs a bit more context uh, given to it. Uh, And so if I can kick off uh, this one, I'm looking at a story uh, that came out in uh, The Guardian. The headline is Australia's authority in Pacific being eroded by refusal to address climate change. Yeah. So this is a story about um, a gathering that's been happening recently in Nauru, the nation of Nauru, the Mm. Pacific Islands Forum, where 16 national governments uh, have come together uh, to have a you know regional discussions on matters of uh, interest and import to this this uh, region. Uh, Australia is one of those 16, so it's New Zealand, Aotearoa, uh, and along with 14 other smaller Pacific Island nations, uh, China and the US are there as observers. Um, And this gathering uh, has been meeting on Nauru, and and I discussed uh, in a previous episode with Brooke Prentice some of the attempts of the Nauru government to keep out of the international spotlight um, mm-hmm. the reality of the abusive and cruel treatment of uh, asylum seekers and, and refugees yeah. on behalf of Australia. And that's, that's not what I wanted to focus on today. But one of the major themes of this gathering, what they're actually talking about, is climate change. And so for many Pacific Island nations, they're all too aware that denying the reality of climate change is not a luxury that they are able to indulge in. Right. Um, you know, this is... This is 
the cancer that has become so obvious that it is a daily wrestle with the symptoms. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, as the, the seas are rising, as precipitation patterns are changing, as they're facing stronger storms, there are existential risks to some of these nations' ability to continue as a nation with, yeah. you know... A, a, on that land at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and so uh, one of the statements, the joint statements that has come out of this yeah. uh, gathering has been a statement acknowledging climate change as the single largest threat to Pacific Island nations. Uh, you know, along with all the other threats they face, they've identified this as the preeminent one. Now, stories have come out saying that the Australian government has played a somewhat dysfunctional, two-faced role in the Pacific uh, on this question. On the one hand, Australia has long been a major um, foreign aid donor uh, to these nations and has acted in a big brother role, is, is a phrase that often gets used. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Australia has really acted as a spoiler and, and a foot dragger um, and a diluter of uh, international negotiations around mm -hmm. climate. Um, and that was true again here at the Pacific Island Forum, where uh, participants reported that there was a nation starting with the letter A who was trying to water down this agreement. And although Australia did end up signing it, it was with reservations. Mm. And so the story that's uh, come out um, by Ben Doherty, I'll just read something from the start here. Australia's regional authority and influence is being eroded by its refusal to address the threat climate change poses to many of its Pacific neighbours, according to a preeminent climate scientist. As part of the Pacific Islands Forum, Australia was a signatory to the Bow Declaration in Nauru, which said climate change represented the single greatest threat to the livelihood, security and well-being of the peoples of the Pacific. And it goes on to talk about how Australia tried to water it down. But in particular, the, the expert goes on to be quoted uh, as saying that Australia's influence in the region is seriously under threat because we are turning our backs on this greatest threat. Mm -hmm. You know, we continue to be a major exporter of coal and a major contributor to the problem in, in digging up uh, one of the major causes. We continue to have some of the largest per capita emissions domestically. And perhaps worst of all, as I said before, we continue to act in a spoiler role in international negotiations, mm -hmm. lowering the level of ambition, lowering the degree of consensus, and basically making it harder for the world to act collectively mm -hmm. um, on this topic. So you're an outsider to this land, but yeah. uh, what, what's your reaction to hearing about... A, a, the, the declining uh, reputation and influence of Australia in the Pacific. Well, I have I have a multiple multifaceted response to that. The first is, wow, I relate as an American, as someone from the United States of America, that I know that in the past we have played that spoiler role, and in the present we are playing playing that spoiler role. We, for a moment there under President Obama, did not. We actually moved forward, but under our president, present president, we are moving back. And so I feel an urgent sense of, well, I guess the urgency of now is what I would, what I would call it, um, you know, calling on or referring back to the language that was put to it during the civil rights er um, era and Dr. King, there is a fierce urgency of now. And that is real for all of us, for, for the world with regard to global climate change, but for none other than these island nations that are particularly in the Pacific Southwest. 
And, um, and I think that when we look at the question of authority, I think that also is another facet of, the, of my response, is when I think about authority, authority really stems from credibility. Authority is one of those things that you don't just have because you have power. It's different to power, isn't it? Right, yeah. No, you can have all kind of power, but you don't always have authority, even when you have power. And authority means that those who you claim or want to have authority with or, or over, or I think among, when you have that authority, it's because they trust you. Yeah. It's because they know that your judgment is going to be good for all, including them. But you lose authority, especially you lose authority when your words say one thing and your actions do another. So when you say that you're you're, uh, a champion and yet your actions actually create more carbon than um, than taking out of the atmosphere, then you lose authority. And actually, not only that, not only do you lose authority, but you break relationship. And that's even worse because that's harder. Trust and relationship is harder to rebuild than, than almost anything else. And this is not, this is, this is dire. Like we're literally talking life and death for whole nations of people. I think that the the thing that, that strikes me is that both Australia and the United States have the benefit of being I mean, to some degree, Australia, well, definitely Australia, to some degree, the United States, an island in their own right, you know, we're called Turtle Island, you know, but an island, but large, really, really huge. And I was actually talking with somebody else, I don't, might have been you, (laughs) three days ago, about the reality that while I would imagine that Australia should be a leader in this because it is an island surrounded on all sides by water. Yeah. Aren't you concerned with sea like sea level rise? Aren't you concerned with the reality of of fierce storms that can knock out whole cities of yours that are along the coast? Well, you do have the benefit of having coasts that are raised, and as a result, you kind of have you have less urgency because of that because you feel like you can get away with it. But by goodness. How can you, how can you sit here in the Pacific? How can you sit here next to island nations that you have annexed, that you are using for prisons, you know, for your own prison structure? Yeah, we talk about colonialism. Come on, come on. How can you, and also next to your other neighbors, the whole Southeast Asian area, how can you do that knowing that your neighbors, your neighbors are going to be not only hurt, but literally annihilated by climate change? And yet, Australia can sit here as if it's not going to affect them. Don't you think? Now, the funny thing is Nauru is set up, right, for refugees. We've had the greatest refugee um, movement of people since World War II in the last six, seven years. Don't you think there's going to be a massive movement of refugees, climate refugees, to your shores? You're going to need Nauru, and you won't have it because it will be underwater. Hello. And, but more than that, y- your, whole, your whole politics over the last several years as a nation has, like ours actually, been to, to stem the tide of brown people coming into your country. Yeah. Right to keep the country as white as it can be, so that you keep the power. But if you are, if you are, um, through your inaction and silence, allowing and 
and also through your actions, your positive actions of pu- dumping more carbon into the That's air right. and the atmosphere. Right? Hello. Then what you're doing is you are actually digging your own hole. Yeah. You are actually creating a situation where people who would be perfectly fine and not just fine, they want to stay in their own nations, will be displaced because of your inaction yeah. and your positive actions to bury their nations underwater. Yeah. So doesn't it it, 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 it just begs your own self-interest for Australia to become a leader in the in the the effort to stem climate change and actually reverse it if it can be reversed at this point. So I think the question of authority, I mean I think that's where it stems. It stems in in really the illogical nature of current Australian policy and the untrustable nature of current Australian interactions with their neighbors. Yeah, no, that's right. And at every level there, uh, you know, whether it's at the level of pure self-interest, whether it's at the level of uh, seeking to maintain healthy relationships with neighbours, or even at the most important level of justice. And Hello. are we harming those neighbours? It's not a matter of, you know, are yeah. we giving them charity? Right. Um, but are we simply giving them justice? Are we, are we not committing what I heard recently described as slow violence, climate change as slow violence? That's right. That's a good uh, way to put a it. A form of offensive warfare waged through the rising waters and the displaced rains and the baking heat waves and a thousand other ways too. Can I just add, like, I mean, I think that slow violence is really powerful and I I think it's a really, really apropos image. I think of slow motion genocide Mm. actually is another way to put it because you literally, through your inaction and actions, will be wiping out whole people groups. Yeah. Right, ethnic cleansing. Ethnic with the cleansing. Displacement of that is right. people groups from their homelands. That is exactly right. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, let's have let's have a little interlude <laughs> to give ourselves a bit of a break. So I want to hear something about your relationship to the media and your consumption of the media and a pet peeve. What's what's one thing about the news media that bugs you? Something that gets under your mm. skin and you just keep on seeing and thinking, ah, oh, why do they do that? Yeah. I, you know, one of my pet peeves about the media is that they actually, what they tend to do is they tend to scrub stories of, of all presence of faith, mm. of, of spirituality and faith. I mean, even to the point where in the United States, most people really don't understand that the civil rights movement came out of the church. It was a church-led movement. Even the abolitionist movement in the United States was a church-led movement. Even the suffragist movement in the United States, for the movement to, have, to give women the right to vote came out of the church. You would never ever know that. And instead, the way that, that media tends to tends to frame religion is as um, as a, a, an adversary to the common good. Yeah. And that's because there are willing actors to play that part within yeah. the religious landscape. But they are not the only people in that landscape. And actually, they tend to be a minority in that landscape. But they have been given the bully pulpit within the media and so therefore have cast all religion, all faith, um, as a villain of common of the common good. And I, so I just, I think that that's, I mean, not only is that really incredibly unfortunate, but honestly, it's irresponsible reporting. It's irresponsible um, storytelling because the reality is is that we've never ever ever in our nation had a major 
a reformation of society that did not involve uh, positive action from communities of faith. Mm. Yeah. So it again comes back to that truth telling. Yes. And the, the... N- bridging the narrative gap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another story in the news okay. uh, recently. Um, this is something that's been going on in Australia for the last few years, really, in a more and more sustained way. But there was another story just today, uh, the third time this week, coal trains heading into the port of Newcastle, um, which is the largest coal port in the world, gathering coal from all across New South Wales. They all get all gets funneled through Newcastle. Coal trains were blocked from heading into that port again for the third time this week as a a uh, young person from Newcastle locked on to the front of a train carriage early in the morning. Wow. Um, and they were there for some hours, eventually being cut off and taken into police custody. But that action is not an isolated one. As I said, that's the third time this week, but there have been a number uh, over recent uh, wow. weeks, um, possibly more uh, in the time since uh, we recorded this and you're listening to it. Um, <laughs> and particularly in the last few years, an increasing movement of you might call it non-violent civil disobedience or non-violent direct action mm-hmm. of ordinary citizens who are breaking the law in order to achieve good. Yeah. Uh, breaking the law in order to witness against an unjust law. That's right. Um, breaking mm-hmm. the law into, in order to protect neighbours. And sometimes in court, uh, people have used a, a defence of necessity, just as you're allowed to break down the front door of a building on fire in order to mm-hmm. rescue people from inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's argued that it may be important to disrupt the movement of toxic coal because of the harms that it does to people's bodies immediately and long-term through climate change. Mm-hmm. So, Lisa, my question to you is, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, this practice of nonviolent disobedience? This is a, another huge topic here, and we could probably spend a whole hour just yeah. on this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's it's something that I know that you have been involved in in the past. Maybe could you tell us one story of a time, um, an yeah. action that you were involved in, mm-hmm. why you did it, and why you thought that was not just something permitted, but something you felt required to do even, something yeah. that you were drawn to do. Yeah, what, what motivated you? Well, it's funny. The very first time I was ever arrested was uh, for the for the issue of immigration reform in the mm-hmm. United States. It was while I was in New York City. I had never been arrested before. I was the kind of person who, no joke, <laughs> in fourth grade, I was on time for everything, mm-hmm. and I never wanted to get a pink slip because a pink slip would mean the end of my life. Like, I mean, literally, I wept in the hallway when I got a pink slip for something. I don't even know what it was, but I said... That means getting in trouble with the teacher. Yes, somehow. Yes, exactly. Yes. The teacher gave me a pink slip and I think I had to go to the vice principal for something. And I think it would just be, I don't even know why, because I was such a good girl. I'm like, how could that happen? But I really thought of every, every time that a teacher or an authority figure, you know, said you did something wrong, that the rest of your life would be ruined. Mm. So I, I was not the kind of person to go get arrested for something. This is not happening. But... I knew when I saw SB 1070, which was a law that was passed in Arizona, the state of Arizona, that actually made it illegal for pastors to transport undocumented immigrants from place to place, even to church, um, that those pastors could go to jail. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Like that, 
that is infringing upon the freedom of religion to operate within the state. And we, as people of faith, are actually called by our faith to care for the immigrant within our borders. Um, and there is no no uh, specification whether or not that immigrant has papers. Mm-hmm. So I was I made a decision to join an action in New York City, and our goal was to have 100 people arrested over three consecutive Mondays in order to gum up the system and make a public statement about the fact that in New York City, while we were having conversations about whether or not we were going to adopt similar um, similar legislation throughout New York State, we were saying no, we will not go there. We are we are actually committed to the to what we say on Ellis Island. Give us your tired, your weak, um, your weary, um, and and your 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 huddled masses. We actually we actually really do believe that there. And so um, I stood on the line and I sang, we shall overcome at the top of my mouth. We blocked Broadway. We blocked traffic on Broadway. First time ever being arrested. 15 of us locked arms, mostly mostly faith leaders, some, some labor union people as well. And I was the last person to be put into the police wagon. And, you know, the guy, the police officer came to me and said, um, you know, it's your turn. And I said, take me. <laughs> I, I told, you know, put my, my, my um, wrists out for him to handcuff me. And he said, behind the back. So I, you know, quickly went behind the back and he laughed. And then he took me into the into the police wagon. And, and I got schooled there. I mean, it was just the university for the movement up in that police wagon. There were people who had actually been in, in these kinds of actions before. And what I learned in the midst of that were two things. As a Christian, some of the most spiritual moments where you will feel feel God, you will feel the Holy Spirit is in those moments of direct confrontation with the powers that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. So when we as people of faith stand up and face, confront the powers directly, we are doing church. That is the vocation of the church on earth. So in that jail cell that I got put in that, I mean, only for a few hours, it wasn't, I mean, I didn't suffer like Paul. I wasn't there for like months or weeks or anything like that. I was there for a few hours, but in that jail cell with that, with that labor union woman, um, who had not necessarily been a church, she told me about a man she knew was being deported that day. Mm-hmm. And so we sat and we prayed for him in the jail cell. But that action they were effective in two ways. One, they got more people to wake up and realize this is important. It's important enough that faith leaders are getting arrested for it. And then secondly, it actually did send a clear message. We did get 100 people arrested over the course of those of those three weeks. Several of my friends who were pastors in the, in the city, evangelical pastors, they decided, you know what? They saw me get arrested and they went back and they got arrested the following weeks. And because of that, now their understanding of what it means to do church has been transformed by their experience. So I actually think that the practice of confronting the powers is a, a, a practice of spiritual formation for people of faith. And it is literally the vocation of the church. It's what we exist to do, is to proclaim and protect the image of God on earth to proclaim and protect the kingdom of God, God's reign on earth. And God's reign, the wellness of it is is manifested in the in the wellness of the image of God within God's domain, which is earth. 
Yeah, and there are all kinds of ways of doing that, right? Of uh, confronting the powers right, of right. living out the reality of God's kingdom. Um, it's not only going into handcuffs, right? Um, uh, mm-hmm. But it, it can mean all kinds of things for all kinds of people. That's right. It could it could mean going and visiting your legislator and simply telling your legislator, mm-hmm. "This is how your policies are impacting the people in your neighborhood, in our neighborhood, and this is what my faith tells me you're supposed to be doing, but it's not happening, or it is happening, and so keep going. Yep. You know, c- keep actually doing good, even in the midst of pressure to not do good, right? Yep. So, or it could be an act of public witness. It doesn't have to be confronting in terms of getting arrested, but it could be something as simple as a block party, you know, just to say, we will be a city of joy. We are going to, we're going to create the world that we want right here in this moment in order to show the fact that this is possible. That's right. Or it could be, if we were talking before about the the invisibility of Aboriginal people, it could be learning history. And telling the truth about history. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and going on a pilgrimage. Going on a pilgrimage. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it could be, you know, faced with the diagnosis of the catastrophic climate change. It could be changing where we get our energy from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the forms that confronting the powers take uh, mm-hmm. will vary for each of us. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental commitment is to truth. Yeah. And to, to living out truth that we are made in God's image. Yeah. And that God cares for each one and that our our environment the the rest of creation matters right so i actually i'm not sure i don't know if the action that those students are taking by jumping on coal cars i don't know if it's actually going to stop the coal but you know what it did it got us talking about it today yeah it got the word out that this is an issue and it's it's actually forcing us to some degree to actually think about, to really think about how do we want our society to function? Do we want a world where climate change is an inevitability yeah. because we are not changing our, our response to it? That's right. Do if, we, you want, if you want yeah. coal cars to stop, if, if you don't want that coal to end up in the lungs of people in China uh, and in raising the seas, uh, washing away the houses of our brothers and sisters in Tuvalu or Kiribati, yeah. If you want the coal trains to stop, but you don't like the idea of people locking themselves on and stopping them, then how will you stop them? Yeah. That's, that's also what it asks, isn't it? Yes. If people are willing to do this, then what, what else can you do? What else can we do Yeah. to change that reality, to shift the narrative, to tell a better story? A story where we share energy with each other rather than relying on digging stuff up from the ground and having you know, a few very wealthy people get a bit wealthier. While, while the rest of us get stuck in a literal and metaphorical hole. That's exactly right. Um, so let's move on to the third segment. I mean, okay. there are other stories that I would oh, love to discuss with okay, you. Okay. But just for the sake of time. Sure. Um, both for the sake of our listeners' time and for your time. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to the third segment. What do we do? I think we're already jumping into this. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already started talking about some uh, actions that we can take in response to the news because we don't just want to be consumers passively of the news or even merely academics trying to understand the news, mm-hmm. as important as analysis and understanding is. Uh, we want to be citizens, we want to be human beings yeah. um, who are loving our neighbour, who are seeking justice, who are seeking to tell the truth and do good mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've already been listing a number of uh, immediate actions that you can take, but one I wanted to highlight, uh, just linked to that coal train story, is to pay attention when people do things like that. They are stories that the media often don't tell 
or will only tell under very specific circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so if you're on Facebook or on Twitter online, then uh, subscribe to a group called Frontline Action on Coal, who are often very good at getting the word out about things that are happening to highlight the urgency, the emergency that we have on having no new coal mines in Australia Mm. um, and on uh, phasing out as rapidly and humanely as possible the combustion of that little black rock. Mm. Uh, So that's one very simple, very practical action you can do is where you give your attention. And so paying attention to groups like Frontline Action on Coal or there's another uh, website that you can go and check out and sign up for uh, that's called Repower Australia. Uh, repoweraustralia.org.au Repower is a people-powered campaign to upgrade Australia's energy system to 100% renewable. So if you like, Mm. Frontline Action on Coal are doing the stopping the bad stuff. This is a campaign for replacing it with a better story. With good Um, stuff. (laughs) And it's a campaign that's uh, a whole lot of different groups from across Australia Mm. and across a whole lot of different backgrounds working together to uh, embed in our national narrative Mm -hmm. the idea that the, the only stable future, the only just future is one in, on which we have 100% clean energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sooner and the faster we get there, the, the better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are two very practical things you can do. Something else in this section, what do we do that I often like to include is a book or a film recommendation. And so, uh, Lisa, you you may have a book to recommend for us. Oh, <laughs> well, yes, I do. For Byron, thank you so much for offering me that opportunity. Well, actually, and I say that jokingly, but but for real, I, I do have a book that's called The Very Good Gospel, um, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And I know that that sounds kind of like pie in the sky or actually kind of you might be underselling yourself a bit there. Yeah. <laughs> you need to uh, uh, hey, be more ambitious in that right. title. <laughs> exactly. I know, I know. But actually, no, I really do title. I really do believe it's true, though. Yeah. I think it is possible for all things to be made well again. I do think that um, for, for everything that's wrong to be made right, and it's very simple the way we do it. We do it by repenting. We do it by make by facing the ways that we have wronged each other, ourselves, and the rest of creation, and by deciding to turn and walk another direction, by facing the truth as opposed to the lies we tell ourselves. And so that book actually goes through multiple different relationships in the world, the relationship with self, the relationship between men and women, between ethnic groups, between nations, within families, um, and asks the question, what are the lies we've told ourselves, the spiritual lies in terms of how we're supposed to be relating with self, God, and others? And then what would it look like for us to live according to the truth? What would it look like for us to actually heal these relationships? And it's based on the reality that this is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus himself actually came in order to confront the powers that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. And sometimes those powers are in our very selves. They've actually... They've actually ruled the way we think of ourselves yeah. with shame and, and, and other, other, other powers that come in and, and warp our own action in the world. So the very good gospel is one of those that actually will help, could help to understand a little bit more what we mean by core lies, core spiritual lies. Another thing I would actually recommend in terms of an action people can take is, is the exercise on core lies, is to really think for yourself, what are the ways that we have been believing untruths about God, 
about our how we are supposed to be relating to God, how God relates to us. And by the us, I do mean whoever we call us, that in-group. And then the other, the one who is not the self, the might even be the enemy other. How does God relate to them? How does God relate to the earth and how are we supposed to be relating? So sometimes those core lies actually um, manifest in society through public policies or through the ways that we work together institutions. What are the clear manifestations of the lie? Let's say it's terra nullius. Let's say it's the, the belief that Aboriginal people really don't really even exist. They don't matter. They don't matter. They don't matter to God. They don't matter to God. They don't matter to God, and so therefore they don't matter. What's the manifestations of that lie that you can point to in greater society right now? Um, it might Honestly, it might even be the immigration policy that you have here. Because until you face the reality that aboriginals do matter and that this land is stolen and that actually that you don't have a right to this land, you yourselves are immigrants, then how are you going to face the reality of the, the uh, horrible way that you're treating other immigrants that are coming into the land, not recognizing their inherent dignity and their, their right to be safe as well? Yeah. Right. So, so that's how this exercise works. Um, so I would recommend literally taking a piece of paper and drawing two lines down the center and a little line across the top and writing in, uh, on the top of one of those boxes, core lies, on the top of the next box, clear manifestations, mm-hmm. and then the next box, spiritual truth mm-hmm. to counter the lie. What's the spiritual truth that counters the lie? And then asking, what can I do to renounce the lie in my life? Yeah, yeah, and I, I, that's an excellent exercise. Uh, and the, the I would only add to that: talk about it with others when you do that. Yeah, do that as an exercise. If you're in a small group of friends, if you're in a regular a discussion group of some kind, if mm-hmm. if you are, uh, you know, in a, a leadership position of a uh, some organisation that's yeah. trying to work out what you should do next, don't just see this as a personal exercise. Though that's super valuable to do that. But this is these lies permeate not just my life, but our common life together. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so that's uh, an excellent place, I think, for us to end with that idea that change is actually possible. This is part of the good news, isn't it? It is. It can feel like we get stuck. It can feel like the forces arrayed against us, whether they be fossil fuel companies, whether they be an administration that seems to have departed all connection with the truth, whether it simply be patterns in our own life of minimizing the needs and hurts of others. It can feel too hard to change. Yeah. But one of the truths that we need to hold on to is that another path is possible, another world is possible. A journey, a pilgrimage to get a bit closer to truth is a possibility for us today. So I want to thank you, Lisa, for not just this last hour that we've shared, but this last week that we've shared together, and yeah. even more than that, just the, what all that you have brought to uh, so many people uh, here in Paddington, in Sydney, in Australia, and the blessing that that has been to us to have our imaginations sparked and our moral compass recalibrated, and that beautiful invitation to walk into the truth. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, listeners, for getting through to the end of another episode. And please do give us feedback on this. We crave your input, your thoughts, your criticisms, your reflections, uh, where we can go next. But this is The Good Dirt, uh, and I'm Byron Smith.